Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning uh, you would take from us all those things that might keep us from hearing your word. Uh, please take all distractions from us. Please help us to hear what you have to say to us. And we pray, Father, that we might live in the light of it to your very great glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A friend of ours, if I mentioned his name, um, many in this room would go, hmm, sounds like him. This friend of many of us was in England years ago speaking at a conference and in one of those obligatory little interviews that you have before you give the first talk, he was asked, well, how are things back in Australia? And this is the answer he gave. Well, there's floods in Queensland and bushfires in South Australia and still there's no repentance. It wasn't meant as a flippant, off-the-cuff remark. It was deliberate and it was very insightful. For our world is racked by one seemingly natural disaster after another with catastrophic loss of life and long-lasting consequences. The deadly earthquake in Turkey and Syria and more recently the earthquake in Marrakesh Typhoon Doksuri in Southeast Asia, Hurricane Idalia in the US, floods in the Punjab and in Libya, wildfires in Greece and Hawaii. With the possible exception of the fires in Greece where it appears there was some arson involved, none of these disasters was caused by human hands. They are rather potent signs that all is not well with the world that there is some disorder that stretches across every conceivable barrier, sky, land, sea, water, wind, fire, summer, winter, day, night. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If personal pain is God's megaphone, what is disaster on the scale of one earthquake after another? Typhoons, hurricanes, floods and fires. Surely it's nothing short of a trumpet blast. Last time we were looking at the book of Revelation together, we considered the first cycle of sevens in the book, the breaking of the seven seals. We saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding out, one, bringing one human disaster after another, conquest and destruction, war and strife, famine and hunger, death and decay. And we noticed that the saints were safe even in the face of the judgment of God and the wrath of the Lamb, the martyrs under the altar, the sealed servants of our God upon whom judgment will not fall. Then when the seventh seal was opened, there was silence. There was something to notice before the next cycle begins. The prayers of all the saints must rise before the throne, before the censer filled with fire is thrown upon the earth. What is about to happen will be an answer to those prayers. I said last time that uh, we will be misled if we read the book of Revelation chronologically, looking for reflections of history as we know it in the words of John. 
It misses the point trying to identify particular characters or events in history in the account given here. The cycles show us the whole of history between Jesus' resurrection and his return, looked at from different angles. This is what the world is like, what it is always like between Jesus' resurrection and his return. And so if the seven seals were broken to reveal ordinary events which are in reality the judgment of God happening again and again in human history, human sinfulness working out its own judgment in the world, then the seven trumpets give us another view. Sometimes the terrifying events of human history are not just the result of human sin. As one writer puts it, God does not always leave human beings to their own devices. When we look at the world, when we ask what is really happening in the world, we must take in the wider view of God's terrifying judgment in so-called natural disasters. Our world is always like this. The world we share with our Christian brothers and sisters is really like this. The world in which everyone lives is just like this. On the one hand, the repeating cycle of the cruel ways in which human sin is played out against each other and against the environment. And on the other, a disorder and convulsion in the creation itself, which we cannot explain in any other way than the evidence of a world under judgment. Seven trumpet blasts. Why trumpets, do you think? When I was a teenager, I played a trumpet in a brass band. That's something you probably didn't know. <laughs> we played concerts in parks in the inner west uh, to entertain people. It was quite fun, actually. And surprisingly, the people who walked through the park seemed to enjoy it. <laughs> Trumpets, you might know, um, have been integral parts of symphony orchestras from the beginning. But in the ancient world, trumpets were not first and foremost for entertainment. They sounded a warning, a call to get ready and to prepare for what's coming. The warning from the parapet that an enemy's army is approaching. The warning to stand for the arrival of the king. The warning to get ready for a sacrifice in the temple. And here in Revelation, each trumpet sounds a warning. Get ready for the terrifying judgment of God is about to be visited upon the earth. Get ready. Which means repent. The judgment described here is not some uncontrolled outburst of rage. It's carefully measured. God is acting deliberately. What is about to happen has been planned for a long time. Did you notice the trumpets were given to the angels? God remains entirely in control. Each particular disaster is, in fact, a demonstration and reminder that God is just. He does what is right. In chapter 6 and verse 10, the martyrs had cried out, How long, O Lord? How long before you judge those who dwell on earth and avenge our blood? When will your justice, your, your perfect setting of things right, be seen on the earth? These prayers of all the saints are carried up before the throne. 
and only then is the censer filled with fire and thrown on the earth. And each of the calamities that come as the trumpet blasts are heard are in answer to those prayers. Displays of God's righteousness and justice. The rebellion, cruelty and idolatry of the world will not go unanswered forever. And with each blast of the trumpet, God acts justly in response to the prayers of his saints. Once again, the language used here contains powerful echoes of the Old Testament, doesn't it? Uh, And those echoes themselves help us to keep a proper perspective on what's happening here. The hail and fire, the sea of blood, the sky gone black, the locusts, all reminders of the plagues of Egypt when God's judgment fell on a cruel and oppressive regime that refused to acknowledge him and crushed his people in the time of Moses. The wickedness, the defiance of God, the oppression of his people will not go on forever. God has never ignored it and he never will. He will answer it. An end is coming. The people who first read these words needed to hear that. And so do we. The great star from heaven that turns the rivers and springs bitter, the exact opposite of the miracle in Exodus 15, when God showed Moses a log which thrown into the water turned bitter water sweet. The time for mercy and rescue has elapsed. The time for judgment and destruction approaches. It's time to repent before it's too late. The world is a mess, but we know why that is. Again and again, it shows evidence both of its own brokenness and of God's determination to bring about what is right. The people who first read these words needed to hear that. And so do we. We are meant to be appalled by the scale of these disasters. A third of the land burnt up, a third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the animals died, a third of ships destroyed. It's monumental on its scale. The scale of the catastrophe is so large that the very shape of the world has been changed. And yet it's still limited. It's a third that is destroyed, not the whole thing. The trumpets herald the end but they do not bring the end. They have another purpose. They are warnings. Do you remember uh, when Jesus spoke about recent man-made and so-called natural disasters in Luke 13? The Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, in his petulant arrogance and cruelty, human sin playing itself out in history. And the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, a disaster not immediately traced to shoddy workmanship or a terrorist plot. It just happened. An inexplicable natural disaster. And yet both the events themselves and the report of them serve a very important purpose. It grounded and gave context to one of the sharpest challenges Jesus ever made. There were some present at at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices and he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, 
you will likewise perish. Or the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The trumpet blast, the warning, the evidence of a world under judgment, these things bring comfort and confidence to those who have been the victims of oppression. It won't go on forever. There is a reason to persevere. But they are also a wake-up call, a warning to those who have been doing the oppressing, a final call to repent. You might have thought that those faced with natural disasters on the scale that we've seen this year alone would stop and think. Something is wrong. We've been heading down a road in one direction and dropped in front of us with such force is one of those highway signs saying, stop, you're going the wrong way. But floods in Queensland, bushfires in South Australia, and still there is no repentance. The most vivid imagery of the Old Testament has been employed in these chapters to show that the unravelling of the world around us is not to be explained by random chance or by human design or by the immutable laws of nature, but by an entire world bearing the judgment of God on human sin. Human sin has these catastrophic consequences. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans of how the creation has been subjected to futility, how the creation itself awaits its redemption from corruption, and how the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. The human race, by turning its back on God, has drawn the entire creation into the sphere of corruption, decay and death. And that is not just a natural, inevitable, unfolding consequence, but the measured judgment of God by which he does what is right. Now, it's a bleak picture, isn't it? But it is one that makes sense of all that's happening around us. The real meaning behind the terrors unleashed by human beings against each other and the environment behind the so-called natural disasters, and they're anything but natural, really, aren't they? The real meaning is that God hears the prayers of his saints and the judgment he has prepared and which he ultimately controls is unfolding again and again and again in our world. And still there's no repentance. Even when it's all turned up a notch, as the fifth trumpet sounds, the first of the three terrifying woes, the hard-heartedness continues. The terror turns from the creation to those who dwell on the earth, not the saints, not the great multitude of believers, not those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is the world that continues to defy the living God. These are they about whom the saints under the altar had prayed. In chapter 6, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? They face the locusts who come to inflict torture and pain. 
the devil even delighting in torturing his own. For a limited time, but nevertheless fierce, so fierce that death would be preferable if they could find it. And all the while, the saints are safe. The same group, those who dwell on the earth, face an unimaginably large army as the sixth trumpet sounds. Twice 10,000 times 10,000. An army which doesn't just torture, but through plague, kills a third of those who dwell on the earth. Not all of them, but a devastating number. How could you not be shaken by the scale of such a loss? Just imagine 33% of the world's population. The pandemic multiplied 10,000 times. Think of the impact on life. The families destroyed. Life snatched away in the midst of it. And yet, even in the face of inescapable, devastating judgment, those who dwell on the earth remain defiant. Take a look at verse 20 of chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Friends, don't look for repentance in hell. There, there is only defiance. Six trumpets blown, six warnings given, six calls to repentance, but there is no repentance. The gospel message of salvation in the midst of judgment carries naturally with it a call to repentance, but it's not a word that we hear regularly in today's sermons, is it? Some people even recoil at the suggestion of it. But Jesus used it at the beginning of his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And at the end, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And the point is that the day is coming when repentance will be impossible. The opportunity will be gone and all that will be left will be pathetic, helpless, empty defiance. Six trumpets blown, but there is more before the seventh. A second commissioning for John. He's given a message to proclaim to the world. It's a message he must digest just as Ezekiel had to digest the message given to him in Ezekiel 3. And it will have a double edge, sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. To proclaim this message in this context will not always be comfortable. It is a word of God's triumph over all that opposes his people and his purpose. In that sense, it's a word that comforts and encourages. But at the same time, it is a message that proclaims the stark reality that faces the unrepentant. The sweet word of the gospel, challenged, opposed, suppressed in bitterness by those who will not repent. Even in the midst of unfolding judgment, the same gospel is proclaimed. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But again, in the midst of it, the people of God are safe. 
a boundary is measured around the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, they are safe within. And even when the opposition is at its most fierce and the two great witnesses of chapter 11 are killed and humiliated and the enemies of the message celebrate their victory, it is short-lived. It might seem like the witnesses had been removed and their troublesome cause wiped from the face of the earth. But that's not the final word. The breath of life from God brings them back to life and stops that celebration in its tracks. The pictures of this chap these chapters just get blacker and blacker. But as the darkness spreads, we keep being reminded that God is in control and that his people are safe. By the time we get to the middle of chapter 11, we might well be asking how much blacker can it get? There is one trumpet still to sound. Two terrifying woes have played themselves out in the world, but what's left? Those who have defied God and oppressed his people, who've done it again and again as the witnesses to God's power proclaim his message in the world, have faced the terrifying judgment of God. What is left? What will the seventh trumpet blast bring? What is the third woe? that brings this judgment to a climax. Well, it's actually astonishing when you have a look. After all the terror and defiance, the prayers of all the saints for deliverance answered in the unremitting judgment of God, the seventh trumpet blast takes us back deeper into reality, back to the heart of the universe, which we've already seen in chapter five. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Doesn't it make the hair stand up on the back of your neck? As we saw last time, this is the reality out of which everything else flows. The terrifying judgment against all who defy him, the utter safety of all who are his. Everything we've read in these chapters must play out the way it does because he is on the throne and he is reigning. And everything that comes in the rest of the book, the seven signs, the seven plagues, the the great white throne judgment, all of it must happen this way because he is on the throne and he is reigning now. The people who first read these words needed to hear that. And so do we. But of all the terrifying things in these chapters, what do you think is the most terrifying? Don't you think it is that despite seven trumpets blasting out their warnings, despite the judgment of God unfolding in the world, despite the fact that the creation itself twitches and convulses convulses as an indication that this judgment is real, still there is no repentance. The defiance just gets worse. But brothers and sisters, as you see that playing itself out in the world, as it has in every century since Jesus' resurrection, there is one magnificent truth to hold on to. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Alleluia.